0: As usual, the band is awesome. Um, I told them in our pre service meeting that no, I'm going to get up there and I'm not going to pray, but I lied. I just feel like I need to, so I'm going to. Here we go. Uh, Lord Jesus, we just want to bow our heads before you uh, and ask that even though the words I'm about to offer as I open your amazing and glorious word, the words I'm about to offer are a feeble attempt at displaying. Um, the, the grandeur of your name and what you're able to do as you break shackles. So I just pray that you would do that in spite of me and my best attempts because you're the one that really has the power here. So I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, so good morning. Uh, yeah, you can definitely take a seat. Uh, my name is Bob. Again, uh, if I've never met you before, I am like an occasional teacher up here. Actually, this is probably going to be my last time teaching for uh a good long while because I have an extended army training coming up uh, for about five and a half months, so uh, sometime in September-ish, it looks like I'm going to take off, and so I won't really get to do this for a long time, so buckle up, I'm going to make this long. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, uh, We're going to be in Ruth chapters 3 and 4 today, so if you've got your Bible, um, that's where you can go uh, as a way of introduction, probably my... Number two movie ever is Braveheart, all right? So that's probably pretty common um, for Braveheart to be in your top five, at least. Um, And it's my number two because, like most of you, my number one is actually Rambo, First Blood, (laughs) um, which is by far my number one movie. But it has absolutely no bearing or tie in to what I'm talking about today, so we're going to stick with Braveheart um, as the illustration. So what genre, how how many of you have seen Braveheart? Yes, good. What genre would you say it is? Comedy. Comedy. <laughs> bah. How many say action? Maybe. Jo- drama, I've heard that. Any others? I don't know. I'm not a movie, movie genius. Um, it's somewhere in the middle, right? Like a, It's like a drama, action, epic. Awesome. Who knows what the genre really is. Um, it's the story of the emancipation of Scotland from England, right? And again, I'm no history buff. I have no idea how true it is, what's reality, what's not. All I know is I love the movie, right? Um, It's this story about um, William Wallace and the emancipation, the freeing of Scotland from English rule. But, and I mean, it's like swords that are, you know, like 12 feet long, and it's all sorts of really genius stuff. But even in, in the midst of that, you find at the core this love story between William Wallace and... Murren, uh, however they would say that, murren. Uh, so even though the story itself is either action or drama or whatever it is, and it's really about the emancipation of Scotland, at its core, you see this thread going out th- through the whole thing. There is this love story between William Wallace and the, the wife that he has to marry in secret, um, and it's about her, her death and things like that. So, so it's this story about the freeing of a country, but it's at the core of it, there's this love story. Why? Why is that always the case? Gladiator, another one of my top fives. It's this stor- huge story, epic story, yet at the core of it is this love story that's happening. Why? Why does that always happen? I was thinking about that, and I think the reason is they, they always insert this smaller plot line to unveil what's going on in the larger plot line. So Braveheart really is about the freeing of Scotland, which is awesome in itself. But if you don't have the, the story of why, why is William Wallace so passionate about this and stuff like that, it's kind of a meaningless movie. It just becomes you know gore and, and action and all this stuff. But as soon as you see the heart behind it, he's fighting for his family and his wife and, and avenging her and all this different stuff, all of a sudden that smaller plot line starts to unveil what's going on in the larger plot line. And I bring all that up to say... I think the book we're in, Ruth, actually acts in really the same way. It's a smaller plot line that's unveiling a really important part of the much larger plot line that it sits in. Ruth is only four chapters long, but it's this love story that unveils the truth that you actually find throughout all the, the pages of Scripture. And it's actually a really similar storyline to the, the whole arc of the Bible, where you see a family that decides to walk away from the Lord, just like Adam and Eve did, just like all mankind does. They decide they're better off walking away, and they go to a foreign country. So you see um, Ruth and, or uh, Elimelech and Naomi walking away. You see judgment, you see everything falling apart, but then you see redemption. That's the, the overarching story of the Bible, and what Ruth is, is it's one of those smaller plot lines that really unpacks what's going on in the larger plot line, and it's a A a really cool little mini love story that does that for us. So, the other cool part of it is it's actually your story as well. It's the same storyline. We all decide to walk away from the Lord in one way or another, and then all of a sudden your story becomes one where God is trying to get you back. He's trying to redeem you, just like He does here. So, with that, what we're going to do is we're going to jump into the text. and just kind of plow through it. I'm not going to read all of chapters 3 and 4, so chapters 3, we're just going to hit the highlights. So Ruth 2 ends, and that's what Jake talked about last week, but Ruth 2 ends um, by saying that Ruth lived with her mother-in-law, Naomi, uh, gleaning in Boaz's field. So if you haven't been with us, those are the main characters so far, Ruth. And then you've got her living with her mother-in-law, Naomi, gleaning in Boaz's fields, and it says at the very end, until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. So what's that, what that's saying is Ruth gleans, grabs stuff from like the edges of the field for a few months. I mean, it lasts a long time. It's not like farming now where we got all this equipment. So she's there for a couple of months, and they all know that Boaz is a redeemer. He has this God-given mandate on him to step into the place of the husband that died to continue the family line because there were no children for Naomi Um, or for Ruth, because they, uh, as we talked about before, they had died. So they all know that Boaz is a redeemer. So here's the storyline. Ruth is gleaning in his field for a couple months, but you don't see anything coming from Boaz as far as taking action to actually redeem. So he's stalled out for some reason. Uh, There's just no action coming. He's just whatever. So maybe he's shy. Or maybe he's busy. Maybe harvest season is a little too crazy. Or maybe he's worried that she's a Moabite and he's unsure what to do with that. It's just, it kind of is a messy thing. So Ruth chapter 2 ends by saying it's a couple months in and nothing's happening. So, I'll pick it up in Ruth 3. Here's where it goes. It says in verse 1, Then Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Now, gentlemen, this is secret woman code language. Because, what in the world does that mean? My daughter, may I? Shouldn't I seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? What she's saying in plain English is, should we not help this situation? This man who is not taking action, and should we not get you married? Um, that is just the. That's what it means. So Ruth says in verse five, Hey, whatever you propose, I'm in. I will do all that you suggest, all that you command. That's what what Ruth's answer is. So they devise a plan. It's Naomi's plan. And what happens is, um, essentially, Ruth sneaks up on Boaz in the middle of the night as Boaz is sleeping on his threshing floor near his barley field. So he's sleeping there. The plan is she walks up in the middle of the night, and she uncovers his feet. It's a Brilliant plan. (laughs) Because you don't want to walk up to Boaz and say, hey, I'm Ruth, wake up. I mean, that's just not going to work. So you uncover the feet, and his toes get cold, and eventually he wakes up. (laughs) So how the story goes, it says uh, he's there by his field. She uncovers his feet. I don't know if she, I think it says she kind of like lays down at his feet. I just picture her standing there. Um, And eventually he wakes up, and he says, who are you? And she answered, I think there's comedy in here, Uh, And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So you got a picture. It's like 1 in the morning. Man, my feet are cold. Open my eyes. Whoa, who are you? Oh, Ruth, I'm your servant. Please spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Again, this is secret woman code language. (laughs) Uh, Because what she has just said is, Spread your wings over me means, essentially, uh, fulfill your role as a redeemer, and will you marry me? It's essentially what she just said. She just proposed to Boaz, saying, hey, fulfill your duty that God has given you to be a redeemer, to stand in the gap where my husband died and there were no children, so stand in that gap, be my redeemer. And she essentially, in the middle of the night, by the threshing floor, proposes to Boaz, saying, we, we kind of need to be married, so Boaz and I have one thing in common, at least. We both married a Ruth. Um, and so I just, just because of all this, this is a cool story to me. I just picture us someday in heaven. We'll form a club like we were married to Ruth Club. Um, there will be a bunch of us, uh, and it'll just be an a awesome club. And we'll share stories and stuff like that, and I'll be like, hey, Boaz, I already kind of know your proposal story. Um, ours is much different because in mine well, I proposed to Ruth. Um, it definitely wasn't like by my barley field or anything like that. I never had a barley field. Uh, I actually proposed to Ruth in Italy, um, in Florence, um, Italy. And the, that was only because my dad worked there for Boeing. It's not like I had any money. He, uh, he got me out there with Boeing. And then uh, and I was like, can I bring Ruth? Because I really want to propose to her there. And it worked. And then the, the how was definitely a lot different. Instead of me or, or, you know, like someone laying in a threshing floor and then uncovering feet, um, we had a deal, Ruth and I, where um, I really had this conviction, like, you don't tell a lady you love her unless you know that you want to marry her, because you don't mess with someone's heart that way. You don't throw out that word and say, I love you, and then if you're not ready to marry her and and make that you know that commitment. So I that was a very clear thing in Ruth and my relationship is I'm not just gonna mess around with that word. So the what I did, we were at the Piazza de Michelangelo or something like that in Florence. And I said for the first time, Ruth I love you. I've never told you this but I love you. And I got down on my knee and proposed. And here's Boaz's answer though, which is very different than the one I experienced. Um, (laughs) So she says, I'm your servant Um, and then it says in verse 10, he said, oh, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, Uh, and then he keeps on going a little bit, but again, that's kind of a weird answer, but it means yes, yes, I will marry you, we will get married, essentially, for me, Ruth just said, yes, okay, she didn't say, may you be blessed by the Lord, my son, or my brother, or anything crazy like that, So so essentially what's happened so far in the story is Ruth has in a way honored Boaz by by doing this and by prompting him to action by saying, hey, you are my redeemer. She's essentially called him to say, the Lord has placed this responsibility on you to be my redeemer, my family's redeemer, so here I am. Do do what you are supposed to do in God's eyes. She's honored him by prompting action from him. I think there's actually a really good lesson there but it's one that I don't have time to really get into, so we'll keep going. Um, but it's a good thing that she does, that she prompts him to action. Um, she calls him to do what God has called him to do, and he, and he essentially says, yes, I'm going to do it. Now, the book of Ruth has been, so far, a series of setbacks. Every time you turn around, something's happening, uh, and, you know, Naomi's family die. They go to Moab because that's part of their plan. And then Naomi's family dies. There's just setback after setback after setback. And this, it, another setback essentially jumps onto the scene right here because uh, Boaz says, may you be blessed. Essentially he says, yes, I want to redeem you. I want us to, to, to do this, to be, to be married. But then he actually right away says, but guess what? According to God's law, there is a redeemer closer to you than me which means there is another person in the family line that has um, basically the, the right before I do to redeem you and the land and all the stuff that's according to the law. Which, if I were Boaz, I don't think I would bring that up right away. I don't know if I would bring that up right away at all. I, don't think, I, would just, I think I would just skip over that. But anyway, Boaz, from that point, he sets out to redeem uh, Ruth. And that's the key word, redeem. So what I want to do for just a second is pause from the smaller story, Ruth, and I want to kind of pan, pan out a little bit. Take the camera angle back and just think of the larger storyline um, of the Bible because that word redeem, um, redeemer, is very, very important throughout all the pages of Scripture. It's one of those threads that goes, out, goes throughout all of the um, pages from the beginning, essentially, to the end of the Bible. That word redeemer is huge, huge. Um, A redeemer is essentially someone who stands in the gap when you can't. Um, A redeemer is a substitute on your behalf when you can't do something on behalf of, um, of yourself. So Boaz, according to this law, stands in the gap for Elimelech, Naomi's husband who dies because she no longer has any sons because they died and there's no one to carry out the family name. So there's a condition in the law that says if that happens, Someone needs to redeem. Someone needs to stand in the gap and act as a substitute so that the family name um, continues. That is like a small glimpse of a larger reality that's happening in the Bible where um, it it essentially points forward to Jesus who does the same thing. Jesus stands in the gap on our behalf um, and acts as a substitute. It's essentially uh, like a a parable of what Jesus does um, for us. And one of my concerns is so many people don't actually understand what Jesus has done for us. So like when we say he died on a cross and he rose from the dead, I actually have this fear that a lot of people don't know why. Why does that have any meaning at all? Like, so, so he died on the cross, which is like a ultimate, like a sacrifice. People usually can say that. It's a sacrifice but, but how does that have any meaning um, for, for you and I? So the same storyline, again, I think it's brilliant. The same storyline is happening in Ruth as the larger storyline of the Bible. So picture it. Ruth is from Moab. She's a Moabite. She is from an enemy nation of Israel. We, essentially, are foreigners who are exiled from God. We are under judgment. We are enemies of God. We, like Ruth are enemies of God. We're essentially part of this enemy nation because of sin, because of what we've done by nature and by choice. We have walked away from the Lord, and we have become enemies of God. Ruth stands in that same place. Um, She is an enemy of God, technically, because she's from Moab, uh, Moab. But God, even when we're enemies, sends a redeemer. The same way that Ruth, even though she's an enemy, he's got this, he's, he sends a redeemer. He's got Boaz, who is to be her redeemer, with Naomi and Ruth. So, so God, even though we're enemies, sends this redeemer and he puts Jesus in our place. That's what redemption really means. So it's not like Jesus just died on a cross and that kind of has some weird thing. It's him taking the punishment for us. Jesus isn't canceling any debt, he is paying the debt. On the cross, he's actually like taking our sin on his back and he's running to the cross and he's saying, I will die the death that they deserve to die. That's why it's really important that he lived a perfect life. He lived the life we were meant to live but we failed to and then he died the death that we deserve to die. He took, he filled in the gap where we couldn't. He was our substitute. That's what redemption uh, means. So when you see that word redeemer in Ruth, Again, it's a picture of a much larger reality of what the whole Bible is talking about. It's this larger love story where God is sending a redeemer um, on our behalf. So with that, we'll go back into the, okay, camera comes back into Ruth. Um, now we'll go to v- verse 4. Uh, it says, we know that Boaz is setting out to redeem Ruth. It says, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. So it's the gate of the city. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Very cool providential thing going on there. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. This guy does have, he has no clue what's going on. So Boaz is like, here, please sit down. And he's like dusting off the finest chair he can find. I need to have a conversation with you. So this is the man who has the, the right according to the law to, to redeem Ruth and marry her Um, and take the land of Naomi and all that good stuff. So he turns aside and sits down, the the redeemer. Then he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said to them, you sit down here. So he's got the redeemer number one, and he's got 10 elders of the city, and now they're all um, sitting down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. You'll remember he died. So I thought I would tell you of it, he's talking to the redeemer, and say, buy it in the presence of those elders sitting here and in the presence um, of the elders and my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you would not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And the man says, I will redeem it. Which essentially means he's saying, yes, I'll, I'll buy this land in order that the, the land stays in Elimelech's family line for generations to come. It's an honorable thing he's doing. But your heart kind of sinks a little bit when you read that because he's essentially saying, and I'm going to marry Ruth, too. And we're all like, who the heck is this guy? He, like, He's just out of left field. And, and to be honest, my reaction is like, like he doesn't get, you don't get to marry Ruth. You haven't even met Ruth. You haven't let her glean in your field for two, two or three months and then sat there inactively not doing anything like you should. Like, you're just some random dude, you weirdo. Get out of here. Um, that's my gut reaction. Um, but, uh, again, he's actually doing an honorable thing by saying, yeah, I'll, I'll sacrifice, I'll buy this field in order to keep the name going. But Boaz is a smart man. He says, okay, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the, <laughs> the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, ooh, I cannot redeem that land for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. So take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot, uh, I cannot redeem it. To me, it's like a, it's, I'm just reading, it's like a sigh of relief, like, oh, okay, cool. Good plan, Boaz. Maybe next time, if this ever happens in your life again, maybe you just walk up to the guy and say, this land is awful, and Ruth is, oh, she's weird. Uh, (laughs) How about I just buy it, I'll pay twice the price. I mean, let's just go with a different plan. But uh, Boaz, ever like the honorable person, he does this whole thing, Um, and this guy, this other redeemer, who's never named in the story, he takes off into history without us ever knowing his name, essentially says, nope, that's going to mess with my inheritance, with my kids and my family already, so I'm not going to do it, which opens the door completely for Boaz to step into that place and say, Ruth, I'm going to redeem you by um, redeeming the land. I'm going to step into the gap. I'm going to act as the substitute for your husband who died, and I'm going to fulfill my role that God has given me. And so he does that. So from verse 7 to 12 in chapter 4, basically, I'm going to summarize it. The unnamed redeemer takes off his sandal and hands it to Boaz, which back then, a little different, was kind of the way of signing a contract or Um, you know, a good firm handshake, if you will, of saying, yes, this is an oath that we're taking. Boaz calls everyone at the gate as witness to what just happened. I am redeeming this land um, and and the whole works. And they all say, yep, we we see it and we support it. And then the people and the elders bless them. They essentially say, "May, may the Lord's blessing be over your family. And then we'll pick it up, keep going in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. That's actually pretty um, significant because do you remember how long she was married to Malon? Did anybody remember that from week one? Ten years. It's not like back then it was like now where you have the, the five-year or ten-year plan where you just decide, I'm not going to have kids for you know, a while. We're just going to travel and stuff like that. Back then you get married and then you, just, you have kids, right? So she was married to Malon for ten years. She didn't have any kids for those ten years. Um, so now she's getting married to Boaz, which means she, with the way stuff worked back then, what is she, mid-20s probably? And yet she had never had any kids. So the fact that it says um, that the Lord gave her conception is actually a pretty cool part of the story because something was going on with her and Malon where they weren't, um, they weren't having any kiddos. So um, keep going. She bore a, and She bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi... Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. So I don't know if you are here week one, but the story has come full circle, right? It started off way different than this. Um, uh, Naomi came back from Moab extremely bitter against God because her world absolutely fell apart, and yet now they're saying over her, the Lord has not left you. The Lord never left you. In fact, he has left with you a redeemer, which again is the same. It's our story. No matter what has happened in your life, um, you get through things and then you look back. It's like you walk through this really the mire and the muck of this valley and then you finally get up on a hill or on a mountain and you look back and you realize, the Lord never left me the whole time. He was there and the, the bigger story that's happening is he has left you, like, like Naomi, he has left you with a redeemer. That's the whole thing that Jesus is trying to do and that God is trying to do um, through Jesus. So here's what I'm going to do. That's the story I kind of plowed through quickly because I want to create space for about the next 10, 12 minutes for us to actually respond. We're going to wrap up this series, um, and we're going to spend some time just giving you a place to um, to think, and to pray, to connect this to your life, to your family. Um, there'll actually be places around the room that you can move to. Uh, the band is actually going to come up, and you can, the band, you, you guys can head up now if you'd like. Um, so what I want to do is I want to end by recalling the main points of the story and asking you some questions. In fact, if you've got something to write them down on, that's great. If you don't want to, that's, that's fine too, but um, these are questions I don't think you should just Um, think about today and right now, I think you should ponder these. So if you look at the storyline of Ruth, what has happened? Well, first, Elimelech and Naomi face a famine where they're at in Israel, and they decide that they're better off turning their back on God, essentially, and heading to Moab. They decide they're better off taking things into their own hands. They leave God's people. They leave God's, the promised land, and they decide we're, we're out of here, we can do better ourselves. Um, and they, they head to Moab. So the question I would, I would pose to you is, when you face a challenge, they face the famine, but you face other challenges, right? So when you face a challenge, who or what do you tend to turn to as your solution? Uh, most of us in this place, I mean, I'm talking the small things to the, to the big things. Most of us in this place, when you face a challenge, somehow you decide that you're just gonna mask it, right? You decide that you're just gonna kind of cover it up or you're gonna kind of medicate in a way. You're gonna try to, to make it so you don't feel the effects of it. Um, so some of us, geez, we'll just sit down in front of the TV for a few hours to mask the thoughts or the whatever's driving you crazy. Some of us will turn to like stuff, like um, you can, most things you can buy your way out of, right so most of, or some of us turn to like a credit card, like this is what's going to make it okay. I face a challenge, credit card, I can just fix it with visa or whatever. Some of us, um, if you face a challenge, you tend even if you've been following Jesus for years, uh, you have the subtle way of turning to just a few glasses of wine that's going to take the edge off of it, and I'm just going to kick back and relax. Um, so whatever it might be. For me, what I do if I face a problem uh, or a challenge is usually I'll just kind of stuff it. Like I'll just go dark and go silent and I'll just kind of check out for a bit. Uh, And I'll just kind of internalize it and let it just kind of pack in. Um, You're not probably going to see any difference on my, uh, you know, my countenance or anything like that. It's just how I deal, right, with, with challenges and stuff like that. But part of walking with Jesus is learning what to do when you face a challenge. And like Elimelech and Naomi, what they decided to do was just take it into their own hands. We're out and we're going to turn our backs and we're going to go to Moab and try to figure it out on our own. So what do you turn to as your solution? That's one question. And then if you keep going in this storyline, life absolutely falls apart for Naomi when her husband and sons die. So she latches on to some pretty dark ideas. We talked about this in week one. And so she's in Moab and all of a sudden she turns around, she's starting to head back towards Bethlehem where she lived originally and she has essentially settled it in her heart that the, this there's like almost this phrase that sinks down into her heart and into her soul and it's, the Lord is against me. I am bitter. I'm no longer sweet, which is what her name means. I am bitter. And so she walks away with this like heavy truth like lodged in her heart um, and it's, it's something that she just, I like to call it because I've, Uh, I just love the idea of it. She's essentially heard this truth in her mind and that she's made an agreement with it. She said, yep, it's true. The Lord is against me. And that's how she walks um, back to Bethlehem. Um, We talked, like I said, we talked about it in week one. um, But life has a way of pounding all of us. It could be small things. It could be huge things. uh, But life has a way of just pounding you. And it starts to introduce... This, these thoughts, these, these ideas, they could be lies, they could be half-truths, and all of a sudden, one day you'll find yourself just saying, yeah, I think it's true. You kinda of let your guard down and you say, I think it's true, and you just start to believe that message that's, that's playing. This could be something that happened years ago, it could be something you're walking through now. It's a constant thing in our life. It's the, one of the things that we all have in common as people. So my second question is, with what life has done to you as it's done to them, what is the message, what is one of the messages that you've agreed with? Like, What's, what's one of those internal truths that you've just said, yep, yeah, I think that's true? And, I, and I'll tell you mine again. I, I did it a few weeks ago. And it's something that's under the surface for me all the time. Um, but the message that I've agreed with is you are on, you're on your own. I mean, that's just... Pounded, like under the surface and sometimes it's louder than other times but the message that I've internalized and I just have to like unpack with Jesus right is you are on your own and so I think there is power as you walk with Jesus to name what that message is what's that tape said in your mind and you finally said yeah and, and it's just there the second question though the follow up would be would Jesus say that message to you I think there's some clarity there if you, if you ask that follow up question whatever message is in your mind, if you've already got it, would Jesus say it to you? Let me ask you this. If mine is you're on you're on your own, would Jesus say that to me? Would he? No, not a chance. He said, he has been very clear about that. He, I am with you. I am with you to the very end of the age. He said that to his disciples. I follow Jesus. No, he... Jesus would never say that to me. So that, to me, brings light, right? It just brings some clarity. No, that's actually not true. I'm not totally alone. It feels like it, and sometimes it, sometimes it really feels like it. But no, that's not true. So the third part of that, if after you ask that question, would be, I would just ask that in in this time when we actually... Like move around to to do different things, I just ask that you would pray with someone. You don't have to tell them that truth, but just say can you please pray that truth would replace lies? That's a powerful, powerful prayer that I would want you to to pray this morning as part of this response. So then the story keeps going. Uh, Naomi and Ruth are back, and Ruth meets Boaz, a redeemer. Someone who stands in the gap when Malon, uh, Ruth's husband who died, when Malon can't. So he is a substitute. So, two, two final questions. One is Have you approached Jesus, much like Ruth did to Boaz, to say, You are my Redeemer? You're the one who stands in the gap for me. And, like she said, she literally says it to, to Boaz Would you spread your wing over me? Have you approached Jesus to say that? Because you have to understand if you don't, You are completely exposed, and you are under the just and the righteous judgment of God. You have to understand that. If you're not under the wing of Jesus, and you're not being protected by that, you're on your own, and you've got nothing to stand on between you and a righteous God. So have you approached Jesus and said, spread your wing over me, be my redeemer, stand in my place, take my punishment, take all the garbage, and stand in that place for me because I I can't, I don't have that power. Um, If you haven't, I would say in this response time, it's a great time to do so, Um, and I would do it with someone, um, and we'll talk about that in a second. Okay, last question is for most of you, you have been following Jesus for years, and you would answer that, that last question, yes, I've done that. Maybe it was even like 20 years ago. So here's a last clarifying question for you. When you stumble or when you sin, do you find yourself basically immediately running to Jesus with that sin do you find like your first response you, you, you figure out I sinned I even knew that God I shouldn't do this but as soon as you do something you stumble you sin do you find yourself running to Jesus and saying I, please cover me like I, I have to offer this up to you do you find yourself running to Jesus when you stumble or do you try to go clean yourself up again before you approach uh, before you come back to God because that, for, if, if this room is predominantly Christians who have followed Jesus for a long time, that is a plague on what happens in the, in the Christian community. Because so many Christians will, will stumble. We all do it. Like this morning on the way here, I griped at our kids in a way where I was like, that wasn't just gripe, parent griping. That was sin against my kids. Like I was a, a grumpy, uh, you know, whatever. And so like it happens day after day after day. When that happens, do you find yourself running to Jesus, or do you find yourself saying, "Ugh," frustrated, and you kind of shrink back from the Lord for whatever it is, a few days and stuff, and then you finally come back when you feel like you've kind of cleaned yourself up again, and it's been a while, so it's like that awkward silence is gone, because the the difference between the two uh, unveils what you really think is going on here. If you really think that you're walking up to to God with just enough righteousness, I clean myself up just enough to come up to you and to please you and to get to stand in your presence, you are completely missing the point in your life as you follow Jesus. You've got nothing to offer him that, that stands between you and God. The only thing you get to walk up to God with is being under the cover of Jesus. He is your Entire righteousness. You've got to understand that. He is 100% of your righteousness. So if you sin and you find yourself running to Jesus and saying, cover me, I plead the blood of Jesus because that is all I've got between me and God, that means you've got an understanding that is at least towards completion, right? It's like the, the most complete way of thinking about it. But if you find yourself shrinking back, that is a place that today as we respond, you could repent of and say, Jesus, I got nothing. I all I got is you that stands between uh, me and God. I hope that makes sense because that has been so freeing to me. So with that, um, there are four stations around this room. You've got one up here where you can light a candle for someone. So if you've got someone on your heart um, and you want to pray to them, you can come up here, light a candle, say a prayer, um, and that would be a powerful thing. There is a There will be people in the back who um, want to pray with you. So if you want to pray with someone, they'll be back there hoping that people walk up to them and say, can you pray with me? They will be hoping for that. And then you've got communion on the sides um, where you can go remember the broken body of Christ where he stood in the gap and he acted as your substitute. Uh, And the offering boxes are there as well. So before we do that, and we will start to worship as well, I'd just like to read the last section of Ruth, um, and then I'll pray. he was the father of Jesse, the father of King David. So let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, the, the book of Ruth is essentially about redemption. And that is the story that you um, have taught through, through all the pages of Scripture, basically. That, that storyline of redemption is always there. So I just want to stand together with um, these people and say thank you. Thank you that Although we turned our backs on you and walked away, you didn't leave us there. Although we became enemies with you, you didn't leave us there. You pursued us, you redeemed us, um, and Jesus took that, that place for us. So I just pray that everyone in this room would have the courage now to respond to you, um, and may that be just a pleasing act of worship on our part. And I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.